Welcome to For the Record with Daniel Fontaine, where we focus on civic and urban issues impacting New Westminster and beyond. For the Record puts it on the record, when and where it counts. Now let's begin. Welcome to the podcast today. It's going to be a great uh, episode. We have a special guest in Dylan Kruger, city councillor in the city of Delta. And Dylan, um, you likely have seen on the news, heard on the radio, he's a pretty high profile city councillor um, in uh, in Delta. He was, I believe, the youngest city councillor uh, when he got elected back in 2018 uh, and uh, very outspoken. He's uh, got a number of files that he's working on is uh, uh, out there in the community as somebody who definitely uh, you're going to want to watch on the municipal level because he's got a, I think, a huge uh, future career in municipal politics and who knows uh, beyond that. But uh, we're very pleased to have Dylan on. We're going to talk to Dylan today about a number of issues that uh, uh, are of interest to to him. We're going to talk about housing. I'm going to talk to him a little bit about the issue of the uh, trucks uh, hitting the overpasses in Delta, some of the impacts that have happened there. As well, we're going to talk about the provincial housing legislation and how that is going to be impacting and um, affecting the community of uh, Delta. Uh, We're also going to play Bell or Buzzer, and we're going to have uh, some tough questions for Dylan today. We're going to have some New Westminster-themed questions, and we're going to see whether or not he gets it right. In addition to that, we're we're going to touch on uh, on dikes and diking and and the cost of uh, flood protection, flood mitigation in cities like New Westminster and Delta. So, this is going to be packed with lots of great um, stuff. So you're going to want to uh, sit back, uh, put your earbuds in. Uh, if you're on the the exercise uh, equipment or if you're in the car, just uh, enjoy. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation. So I'm Daniel Fontaine, and you're listening to For the Record. very pleased to welcome to the podcast uh, today uh, Delta City Councillor Dylan Kruger. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Councillor Fontaine, thanks for having me. So I always start the podcast off with my guests uh, with a very, one of the toughest questions I'm going to ask throughout the podcast, and that is, who is Dylan Kruger? Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about who uh, Dylan is? Sure, I'm uh, I'm happy to. Um well, shockingly, I'm a big politics nerd. I grew up, uh, you know, my friends were outside uh, playing roller hockey or whatever normal people do. And I was indoors uh, watching uh, presidential debates and uh, and Canadian debates and uh, holding mock elections with my family and forcing them to vote in them. I <laughs> uh, spent some time uh, uh, after uh, after university out down in Ottawa uh, working with the federal government. Went back, was working with the provincial government. And it was it was through some of that work that I met uh, our now mayor, George Harvey, uh, who was looking to to run for mayor and build a team of people from different perspectives with a shared common vision. So we, we put this political party together called Achieving for Delta, based on a set of achievements that we wanted to, to get done. Uh, and again, bringing people to the table from different perspectives, different walks of life, because we have this philosophy that if you bring people with different uh, perspectives and backgrounds together, we're actually going to get better decisions uh, at the table. Uh, so I brought the perspectives of, of uh, a younger generation and, and a young family. I've got a two-year-old daughter now with another one on the way. And that's been kind of my mission on council is is fighting to, to keep young families in our community uh, and fighting uh, for that next generation to make sure that they have a chance to also live uh, and succeed in the Metro Vancouver region. 
So, uh, Dylan or Councillor Kruger, I'll call you whatever you'd like me to call you on the podcast. But, uh, Dylan, um, you know, this is your second term. Anything different from your perspective uh, compared to the previous term, which I know was, I would suspect, relatively unique given the COVID pandemic? Yeah, we certainly did not expect to go through a, a global pandemic. That was not on my bingo card for last term. So that certainly uh, uh, threw us for a loop. Uh, also, just the political dynamic is a little bit different this term. We were on a split council last year. Uh, and uh, and in our last election in 2022, we were actually able to get our entire slate of candidates elected uh, to council in Delta. So uh, new, new and different challenges this time, but it is uh, unique and, and a nice change to have that shared vision and know that we're going to have the votes to get some of those campaign promises achieved. First topic on the podcast today is going to be something that I know is near and dear to your heart and to probably many residents in Delta, and that is the Massey Tunnel. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about that Massey Tunnel, about it being replaced. I believe the previous BC Liberal government had plans ready to go. They had the they had this the this, this ground compacted. I think the architects are they were ready to go on this bridge. In fact, I believe that bridge would be built by now, um, had that kind of moved forward. But Nonetheless, uh, history uh, went in a different direction. We had a new government and they decided to to uh, kind of shelve the bridge plans and move to a tunnel. So where are we at with the Massey Tunnel and why is it so important to you and, and council and the rest of the folks who live in the Delta area? Yeah, it's been a really frustrating, basically 10 years on this topic. I think every election, municipal, provincial, federal, since 2013, when Premier Clark announced the bridge replacement uh, has been centered around this topic in my community. Uh, people are tired. People are frustrated. I think if you pull most people, they'd say they might have had an opinion at one point on bridge versus tunnel. Today, they just want something done. Mm. And it's not just about the 80,000 commuters that travel through this tunnel and are stuck in gridlock every day. It's about the fact that this is a key national trade corridor connecting Highway 99 to the U.S. Blaine border crossing, to Delta Port, the largest container port terminal in Western Canada, to the Tawasin Ferry Terminal, the, the primary gateway to Vancouver Island. And local commerce and national trade, when it is stuck in oftentimes one lane of traffic with the, uh, the counterflow in uh, at this key crossing, there are real impacts on real people both locally and across the country so that's our sense of frustration you're right we should have had a ribbon cutting two years ago we're now being told 2030 or possibly a little bit later before we're going to see that new crossing so dylan a 2030 seems i mean some might think it's not a long way away because um you know to build these massive projects but even 2030 to me seems a little suspect i i just don't see how we will be having a ribbon cutting there uh, anywhere close to 2030, just given how long projects are taking to uh, taking to be constructed, as well as the cost on some of these, just to finance. I mean, you turn around now and uh, construction projects are 10, 20% more than they were just several months ago. Well, as you know, in your municipality, and you nailed it, nothing is coming in on time or on budget anymore. And uh, this is a very complex project. This involves anytime you're touching uh, a river, a waterway in British Columbia. It involves a very uh, complex environmental assessment process, engagement with uh, Indigenous communities and other uh, relevant stakeholders. Um, the, the complexities of building a immersed tube tunnel versus a bridge 
when you build a bridge, you you can build it, you can literally build a bridge. In this case, we're going to build a series of, of segments of tube on dry land uh, and then barge those uh, to those tubes uh, one by one uh, into the Fraser River and submerge them into place. So it is a very technical process. 2030 would be great. Um, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical at this point, just because I think our community has been burned so many times before on this. So uh, yeah, I think it's going to be a little bit later, but you know, still hoping for the best. Well, uh, you said you had a two-year-old, so let's hope that uh, before uh, they get their license, they'll actually that uh, that tunnel will actually be constructed. So that <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Dylan, uh, now switching topics to something else that I know you've been um, uh, very vocal about uh, your council, you personally, and that relates to housing. And you've talked uh, a little bit about it in the previous segment about championing housing options for younger families to stay in the Delta area. And I've seen and read some materials where you've talked about people having to leave Delta and move to places like Abbotsford and Chilliwack, which are lovely communities, but people shouldn't have to move out to Abbotsford and Chilliwack to find affordable housing. So let's start with the new uh, provincial legislation that's just come in in the fall. There's been a lot of hype and a lot of discussion around how this is going to just literally transform and change cities and housing is going to be developed. I mean, I think the premier said he wants to see things happen between now and October. So what's your thought first on the provincial legislation, um, all that's coming down and and whether it's going to make a difference and people are going to see housing between now and the provincial election? Well, just setting the stage here for a second. The Metro Vancouver region is going to have a million new residents living in it by the year 2050. Every year, we accept about 55,000 new residents into the region. That's the equivalent of the entire city of North Vancouver moving to Metro Vancouver every single year. And the reality is, in most cases, not all cases, but in most cases, our cities have put our neighborhoods into time capsules. Where in my in my community of Delta, most of our community was built late 1960s through the 1970s, and zoning rules were put in place uh, that isolated those communities in those forms that didn't allow neighborhoods to grow naturally and organically to respond to changes in family needs over time, which is the traditional way cities have been built over centuries. This this modern planning phenomenon is really only half a century year, uh, old, and we're seeing the consequences of that. We simply have not approved nearly enough supply to meet the demand to live in what is, in my humble opinion, the best place to live uh, in Canada, if not on Earth. Uh, that demand is always going to be there, and we can't shut people out. They are coming here no matter what. If we don't build the housing to meet that supply, this situation is going to get a whole heck of a lot worse before it gets better. So I do applaud the, the provincial government for some of the changes that they brought in. Some of those changes are, are ones that I and others have been calling for for a long time, especially the uh, mandating transit-oriented development around major SkyTrain stations. It's crazy to me that we can build multi-billion dollar SkyTrain infrastructure and still allow uh, single-family home zoning around some of those stations. Uh, requirements for more of that missing middle housing, those multiplexes, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, there are challenges that are going to come with it, and I'm sure we'll discuss it, but certainly I think it 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 is in the right direction and it is meeting the significant supply challenge uh, that our region is facing. Yeah, I think you raise a lot of good points, uh, Dylan. The the only area where I would think I I kind of uh, perhaps digress is, is or kind of go into a different direction is it's around the timing on all of this. And I keep hearing like all these announcements and things are going to happen and things are going to happen fast. 
I've read the legislation. I've looked at it. I've, I've been briefed, obviously, by our staff at the city of New Westminster. From By my estimation, nothing is happening fast. There is nothing that ever happens fast when it comes to housing. And I'm just hoping we're not setting up um, you know, a lot of expectations. I think that, like, I agree with you, a lot of the stuff that's being proposed will make a difference in five, seven, ten years from now, I think, when when a lot of this stuff comes on board. But we have such pressures right now in terms of getting housing built that I'm I'm a bit worried that um, we put a lot of our eggs in this basket and, and perhaps in the, in the short and near term, um, people are still going to be languishing, waiting to get uh, into a place or having to pay three, four thousand dollars for a one bedroom apartment because there's just not enough supply. No, I, I think you're bang on. I, I think that's an accurate assessment. Uh, nothing happens fast. Even if we were to open a new um, a, a new building to, to house a thousand people uh, today, if we were doing a, do a groundbreaking, that would be a, a multi multi year uh, construction project. Right. So so nothing happens fast, even if you put shovels in the ground today. But we are taking steps to correct what is, in my opinion, decades of failed uh, planning practices. And in fact, I'm, uh, we're going through our OCP process right now, as I'm sure you are in your city, our official community plan update. And we're required to update that plan by June. And some of the comments that we're getting from our residents is, whoa, this is actually happening too fast. We wish we could have more dialogue and discussion. So it's that balance of how do you ensure uh, a healthy community conversation while also moving forward with purpose and the urgency that the situation requires. So beyond what the province has announced in terms of the various bills and, and uh, actions they're they're taking, what specifically has Delta been doing around trying to uh, ensure that the kind of housing that the residents at Delta and the people moving to Delta need is actually being constructed? Yeah, Delta was already along this path in many ways before the provincial legislation came out. We completed a, a housing action plan at the end of our last term that looked to densify along our uh, frequent transit corridors. So for us, that's Scott Road in North Delta, where the new rapid bus just came in, Ladner Trunk Road in Ladner and 56th Street in Tawasson. We want to densify where the amenities are as well, right? The opportunity for people to walk outside of their homes and be in walking distance to shops and services and restaurants and public plazas and things like that. Um, so that's where we'd already been concentrating our density. We've been putting plans in place. We'd, we've waived our development cost charges for nonprofit below market uh, housing, uh, looking for other uh, policies such as rental protection. You know, we've been lucky in Delta. We haven't had the same challenges that cities like like Burnaby and others have had with uh, so-called rent evictions or those older apartment buildings that get torn down simply because we didn't have a lot of that apartment stock in Delta. So uh, finally, though, uh, the, that little stock that we have is starting to become 40, 50, 60 years old. So ensuring that those longstanding tenants are taken care of uh, was also a priority. So we were already moving forward and, and we're lucky that we have a council right now that generally believes that supply is the solution uh, and is looking towards uh, attracting those types of projects to Delta. So how many people uh, are moving to Delta, do you know, uh, in terms of population growth on on an annual basis? Is it growing at the same rate as a place like Surrey or other communities? Way smaller growth. And I think that's been one of the challenges. We have been in competition to be one of the slowest growing communities in Metro, (laughs) probably probably, uh, in competition with with our friends in West Vancouver there. Uh, In fact, that's why we were one of 10 cities in British Columbia that were put on the province's so-called naughty list. Mm. Uh, because we've been very bad when it comes to approving uh, more housing. So we've actually been given mandatory housing targets. We have to approve 
about 3,600 uh, new units or have those actually be occupied in the next five years, which for us is a big step. You look at cities like Surrey, Surrey and Langley, they are growing at such a rapid pace right now. You look at some of the projects in, in Metro Town and, and Brentwood, uh, we, we are behind and we can't live in isolation, right? Sometimes I, I hear a lot from 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 certain folks that, well, you know, let those other cities take on that growth, but, you know, let's let's protect Delta and what it is. The reality is we're not a small town uh, in the middle of the province. We're 20 minutes from YBR Airport. We're 30 minutes from downtown Vancouver. We do have an obligation to to take our, our fair share of the new housing, not just for the new people coming in, but also for Delta born and raised people who the emails that I get from people who think just because I talk about housing and you know, I'm I'm kind of in the in that world. Maybe I might know something, and and they're in desperate need, and they just there is no supply in Delta, uh, so we have a lot of catching up to do. Now, going to talk about uh, trucking, and that has been uh, making huge headlines not only in Delta but across the province, and it's specifically around trucks that are hitting overpasses and and. Uh, you, again, have been out there in the media talking about um, how concerned you are that you, Delta seems to be getting a lot of the, unfortunately, have, uh, all joking aside, you've been hit hard by these uh, these trucks who've been hitting the overpasses. Um, the province, is, uh, as of the recording of this podcast, just announced that it's going to be removing the license for Chohan Trucking, and I assume others perhaps are going to be uh, coming forward. Do you think that's the right approach? Um, because I've heard others... Critics who've said that the province should also be investing in detection devices like in Alberta and in Washington state, where um, there are very few of these uh, these types of incidents happening. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's it's absolutely the right approach. My only comment is it should have happened sooner. I mean, we can talk about detection devices and other sorts of technology, but at the end of the day, it's the companies themselves that are liable uh, to ensure that the drivers that are on the road using their vehicles uh, are properly trained. Uh, every single one of these inc- incidents is avoidable. Every single one of these incidents is negligence. Uh, and and I, to be clear, we have thousands of amazing truck drivers and, and companies in this region that are doing amazing work, uh, bringing goods to market. Uh, these these small number of ice, uh, of of, of uh, perpetrators have to be uh, held liable. Uh, so I, I think certainly getting rid of the the, the licenses was a good start. Uh, we also need stricter fines and penalties. Even with the recent increases, five hundred and seventy five dollars mm-hmm. for ramming into multi million dollar provincial infrastructure. It's just not good enough. So I, I think it was you, or perhaps some of your colleagues in Delta, were talking about a couple of other things. One was getting the province to reinvest on roadside um, safety inspections and doing that kind of like more eyes and ears on the street in terms of the enforcement side. I've, I've heard that. Um, the, the other piece definitely is uh, not only around the fines, but also holding the uh, insurance companies that are insuring these trucking companies uh, liable for if a truck does hit an overpass like that, that, uh, you know, which uh, I think you and I both know uh, the repairs on that is in the typically in the millions of dollars that has to be picked up by by taxpayers. Are those the kind of things that you guys are also calling for for the province? Oh, absolutely. And it's not just the the cost of repairs to the infrastructure. There are real uh, impacts on on people and communities. We've had uh, at least two overpasses in Delta hit in the last couple of months. And uh, when the last one was hit, we had 
it, it basically bifurcated part of our, our community. We had uh, businesses on, on the northern side of, of Highway 99 that had to close down because mm-hmm. they couldn't get uh, their, their workers in, in, into work or, or be available to customers. It was cheaper for them uh, to close shop uh, while these uh, repairs were ongoing than, than to stay open. Uh, so there's real local economic impacts, not to mention the people that are stuck uh, in traffic when these incidents happen. So uh, the companies need to, to be a part of the compensation for this. And, and again, $575, uh, you know, add a few zeros on there. It does, just does not even, it's a drop in the bucket compared to, to the punitive fines that should be paid. So are you expecting uh, in the coming months as we lead up to the provincial election, some major announcements from, say, BC United and the BC NDP around this in terms of some additional enforcement measures? I hope so. I put forward a motion uh, at my council for uh, that's going to be going to UBCM later this year, calling on amendments to legislation, because right now the, the province is restricted by legislation in terms of uh, the maximum fines that they're able to charge in these instances. It's certainly become an endemic. It feels like, I've been saying, it feels like Groundhog Day, waking up, it's, okay, which which overpass is going to get hit this week, right? It's just, <laughs> it's come out of nowhere. So uh, people are just so sick and tired of it. So I, I hope that all parties look at this seriously and come up with some creative solutions in the next election. want to talk a little bit now about senior government funding. Uh, you were very vocal um, in the last few weeks, just prior to the, the recording of this broadcast, around the need for additional investment in transit infrastructure, in, in public transit, and how um, uh, critical it is to get the federal provincial governments at the table. And I would add to that, I'm sure you agree with me that Things like uh, sewers, pipes, um, additional affordable housing projects, et cetera. The shopping list of things that municipal governments are asking senior orders of government to get to the table on continues to grow by the day. So we've got a provincial election coming up. We've got a federal election. Who knows? That could be coming literally within months as well. What are you expecting to see and what do you hope to see uh, in terms of commitments to some of those key areas that you've been speaking about? Well, I'm backing up on our conversation to housing and I'll I'll caveat what I said previously, we desperately need housing. But along with that, we need unprecedented levels of investment from the provincial and federal government in local infrastructure. We can't have the province saying on one hand, oh, you have these mandatory housing targets to meet and the federal government on the other hand saying, okay, we're going to hold up all this housing accelerator funding unless we see, you know, massive increases in density and not see them step up to the table when it comes to other pieces of critical infrastructure. Uh, At TransLink, we have a fantastic plan called the Access for Everyone plan to double bus service across the region over the next 10 years and introduce nine new bus rapid transit lines. That plan is unfunded right now. We need uh, to, to, to rethink the way that we do uh, revenue sharing uh, and find new sources of funding to deliver on those commitments because the only way this is going to work, million more people in Metro Vancouver, they can't all be driving cars. We have to find ways to get people on transit. To do that, we need better transit service. So that's the first one. So how how would that uh, transpire? So when you say we need more funding, are you talking about the provincial government setting up a new program? Are you, are you asking for them to transfer taxing authority or taxing power to municipalities or to Metro Vancouver, how would that in, uh, how would the, when the rubber meets the road on that, what, what will that look like? And, and will uh, people just end up paying more taxes as a result of that to fund things like transit and, and municipal infrastructure? 
Yeah, it's a really challenging conversation, and it all stems back to that failed and very contentious referendum that we had on a, on a regional sales tax about a decade ago, which would have gone towards sustainable and predictable long-term transit funding. The reality is local government uh, has very limited tools to raise revenue. We pretty much have uh, through um, through through fees and fines and through property taxes. Uh, and it's the same with TransLink. They have uh, the ability to collect uh, revenue through uh, literally going and, and buying tickets to get on transit and through uh, property tax levies. Everything else is whatever the province uh, uh, deems uh, to give us. So uh, TransLink has been advocating for a long time for you know, perhaps a vehicle levy. None of these none of these ideas are going to be fun to talk about, by the way, because nobody likes to talk about uh, increases in, in fees. But we have to think about how do we fund these services? You look to other cities. We have a we have a gas tax right now that is a naturally declining fund as we get more efficient vehicles, as we get more people switching to electric. Uh, Transit is projected that revenue source is going to dry up over the next several decades. How do we replace that? Is it through a vehicle levy? Is it through another cost-sharing mechanism? Uh, these are the conversations that we need to have as we do our long-range planning for, for public transit moving forward. Well, one of the things I've been advocating for for well over a decade is um, is to be able to provide incentives to municipalities and to our region in particular as a broader uh, view of economic growth. So to encourage economic growth, that perhaps the province could put a baseline as to what, where our economy is at right now. And if that economy grows, there's a dividend that could get paid out to the municipalities and to the cities to actually encourage them to find better ways to grow the economy, to, to attract small businesses, to make sure that housing gets built faster. My concern, uh, uh, Dylan, with just simply adding more dollars in is that we're not dealing with the structural problems we have around. There's no incentive for local government or metro government to actually grow the economy. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The, the more the economy grows, the bigger it gets, the more infrastructure that needs to be paid for. And it's kind of like almost self-defeating. So I've never really heard too many people talk about that economic dividend payment, but I would love it if during the upcoming um, election, we heard from our provincial and perhaps even our federal partners around putting dollars on the table, like all agreeing that if we all work together and we grow the economy and the economy gets bigger, there's a slice of that um, that economic pie that will come back to cities to be able to provide incentives to further drive the economy, but also invest back into the community. What do you think about that? Daniel, I, I think you're bang on with this. People don't always realize when the economy grows, income taxes grow. Uh, 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 corporate tax share grows. Provincial and federal coffers grow. The municipal share of the pie stays the same. The only way our share of the pie gets bigger is if we choose to increase our property taxes. That is very unique for local government. And you're right, it does provide a disincentive to growth. Cities could be, uh, the reluctance of cities to say yes to new housing can be understood to a certain extent because you look at some of the challenges at Metro Vancouver with multi-billion dollar water uh, treatment plants, sewer treatment, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> exactly. Big, big ticket items. Um, we don't have the right uh, tools uh, to fund that growth. Right now, we're reliant on the benevolence of senior government cutting big checks, right? That It's not a sustainable long-term model. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I 100% agree. And I think until we we rethink that model and 
provide incentives uh, to grow the economy locally and to be able to, to, like you said, not just simply have the federal and provincial government collect more in terms of corporate and income taxes, but that municipal governments can actually benefit from that growth too. Then you might look at people providing, um, you know, more innovations and being able to facilitate growth of, of local businesses. But until then, I think you and I are going to be having that discussion for, for a long time. Well, I think you're absolutely correct. On uh, another topic that is of interest to both of our cities, uh, both New Westminster and the city um, of Delta, is dike protection. So we both uh, are very fortunate to live along the beautiful Fraser River, um, but with that beauty and that river comes some some risk as well, some some danger of flooding. And um, I know uh, you've spoken out about the provincial government's kind of um, devolving, speaking of costs then to municipal governments, the provincial government has effectively downloaded all of the costs for dike protection onto municipal governments, which when I became, got elected, that, that was really the first time I heard about that. I hadn't actually wasn't aware of that. And I was shocked to learn that cities with their limited tax revenue have to now pay for dike protection in a place like Delta and New West. Um, that's critical because we have so many people that live on the Fraser River here in New West, and you have a lot of people that are in a floodplain. Surely to heavens, this is going to cost a fortune to protect um, a community like Delta. Yeah, and you're not alone. This is a little known fact, Daniel. About 30 years ago, uh, the, this this was something that was downloaded to cities. Uh, the maintenance and and protection of our of our dike infrastructure. Um, not, uh, I'm not as aware of the New West context, but in Delta, we're hit twice because we're, we're we have uh, ocean protection and river protection that we need to think about, and. The cost to upgrade all of those dikes uh, across our just Delta, let alone the region, to the required dike heights for 2050 and 2100 levels, two billion dollars. That's billion with a B. We're a, we're a city that has a 300 million dollar annual budget. There is no way in a million years we will ever be able to fund this on our own. So what happens is every city across Metro Vancouver and across British Columbia is now forced to compete with each other for very scarce senior government grant dollars for flood resiliency infrastructure or dike upgrades when they come up. So now Delta is competing with New West and Richmond and Surrey instead of working together. Because mm -hmm. look at what happened uh, when the Sumas uh, floods happened in Abbotsford a few years ago. That, that flood didn't respect municipal borders. It, it, it didn't respect uh, federal borders. It, it, it went into Washington state. We have to have a more collaborative approach focused on a priority basis of what is the greatest need based on potential human and economic impact and systematically go and, and upgrade that infrastructure. But but this competition style hunger games that we're in uh, for flood resiliency, uh, totally nonsensical and antithetical to the climate crisis that we're in. Very good way to describe that. And and I, I note with, with great curiosity that so many politicians, um, uh, in particular at the federal and provincial level, that talk about climate change uh, we've been they've been talking about climate change for the better part of a couple of decades um, end up getting elected or in, have the levers of power and yet uh, have not opened up their wallets and not literally opened up the financing or, or or figured out like you said a way to have this be more collaborative and less like hunger games um because with climate change we all know based on the science that that the you know cities like delta and cities like new westminster are going to be directly impacted in particular as you said with with you being directly um uh, adjacent to the not only the, the river but also the ocean uh, at the same time so 
we'll see. I, I'm I, I again. I always think when there are provincial elections, things come up and the promises are made, and let's hope that there is um, some provincial commitment or some provincial interest in the upcoming campaign on this uh, very important topic. So my hope is we have the BC flood plan coming out later this year. I hope that because of Sumas and other incidents that have happened, this is going to become more sexy to talk about in the upcoming provincial election. Typically, as you know, we run in these four-year cycles. Flood resiliency is not a four-year plan. It's not going to help in the four-year plan of any elected uh, politician, but it is it is essential to our 20-year plan, uh, again, to our kids' future and prosperity. So I, I hope it's more on people's radar, and I hope this can become a nonpartisan issue. I, I really, really do. 100% agree. Dylan, uh, before we um, wrap up and we uh, we play our wonderful bell or buzzer game, which uh, you've kindly agreed to uh, to play, and uh, we'll see how well you do in, in this latest edition. But before we, we do that, I just want to touch on um, a little bit uh, you mentioned earlier about getting younger people involved in municipal government. Um, I am a huge advocate, and and uh, whenever uh, I can get younger people engaged and involved in municipal, federal, provincial politics, I really encourage them to do. But I'll tell you, in my in my mid fifties, I'm just finding it that harder and harder to see what I consider as young people in politics today. I, I mean, today, you know, I'm I'm joking about this, but literally, young is like forty now. Like you just don't you don't see anybody kind of getting in. So what's your perspective on that? And what do you think we could be doing more of at the, particularly now at the municipal level to get people engaged? Because I think if they get involved at the municipal level when they're younger, it might, they might be interested in maybe doing, you know, provincial or federal at some stage later in their life. But um, any thoughts? Yeah, I totally agree. One of the favorite things that I get to do on council is speak to school groups. I love going into elementary schools and high schools and, chatting with kids and actually usually the elementary school kids have better questions than the high schoolers but uh but getting getting young folks involved municipal is is the best place to do it i've done it all now like i was a teenager knocking on doors for my local provincial or federal candidate municipal and i'm biased in this it is so much fun to get involved in a municipal campaign because it's one of the rare places where you get to see both the, the ground war and the air war in action uh, it's all local. So you get to see the decision makers who are building those campaign platforms, who are building that messaging. They're the same people that are knocking on the doors. Uh, it's such a great uh, baptism by fire in the, into the political world. It also leads to great future career opportunities as well for for young people that are into politics. So uh, for me, the biggest thing is, is, you know, having young people see themselves in elected office. So again, uh, that's where I look to our existing leaders, our, our mayors and incumbent councillors who are running slates in, in future elections to ensure that that those slates have a good diversity of voices. Young people want to see other young people at the table. And again, shockingly, when you have young people and young families at the table, they talk about issues that are relevant uh, to those generations. Uh, but it really is dependent on uh, those in leadership positions who are doing mentorship and transition planning uh, to bring those folks along with them in the process. Very good point. And uh, let's hope as we watch the provincial election, like I said, uh, uh, roll in and for the federal election not too far behind likely that we will see hopefully a greater interest in younger people uh, running. And uh, but again, I, I don't want to sound defeatist, but I, I just I am concerned that we're not getting enough young people, even in the places like volunteering and seeing them in campaigns and seeing them active. Um, that that whole disengagement is is concerning because 
um, they're the future. <laughs> they're the ones that are going to have to be in government, running government, whether it's municipal, federal, provincial. Okay, folks, it is that time of the podcast. This uh, little bit of music here means that we're about to play Bell or Buzzer. Okay, Dylan, it's time for us to play Bell or Buzzer. I think you know how to play the game, and uh, but I'll just make sure you have the um, the contest rules. So I'm going to read you out a question. You're going to have it to multiple choice. I'm going to give you four answers. You are going to give me the answer, and you're going to hear either the bell or the buzzer. If you hear the bell, it means you got the right answer. If you hear the buzzer, it means you got it wrong. Um, unlike previous contestants uh, who've made attempts to do this, you do not have a lifeline. You cannot phone a friend. You cannot do anything like that. <laughs> the answer is solely on you. But if you do want to ask me for a hint on one of the questions, I have done that for a previous guest. And I have uh, you know, been a bit generous on that. So I might be able to do it today if you need some help. So be- without further ado, let us get into the first question for Bell or Buzzer. Here we go. So, uh, Dylan, New Westminster was named by Queen Victoria in 1859 and was originally intended to be the capital of the colony of British Columbia. What other British Columbia city shares a royal connection in its naming? Okay, so what other BC city shares a royal connection in its naming? Here we go. Was it is it A, Nelson? which is also known as the Queen City, by the way. Is it Nelson? Is it Victoria? Is it Kelowna? Or is it Delta? There you go. So is it Nelson, Victoria, Kelowna, or Delta? What's your response? Oh, it's going to be really awkward if I pick uh, something that's not Delta and I'm wrong. (laughs) I'm going to say Victoria. Okay. You didn't think Nelson with the Queen City? Oh, no, okay. I think that's red herring. I'm going Victoria. Okay, okay. Okay, here we go. Uh, is that your final answer? Final answer. I'm locked in. I'm okay, locked in. Lo- locked in with B, Victoria. So let's hear. Is it bell or buzzer? Congratulations. You got that one right. It is Victoria. So you're a one and oh, here we go. You got the right answer on that one. So um, next question. Um, they get tougher, by the way, as we go through them. <laughs> as we go through Bell or Buzzer. So New Westminster holds the distinction of being British Columbia's first capital city. In what year did it lose its status as the capital to Victoria? Is it A, 1849, B, 1876, C, 1899, or D, 1905? When did New Westminster lose its distinction as the capital of British Columbia to the city of Victoria? Oh, boy. Okay, well, you're testing my BC history here. I know that at some point, the colonies of Vancouver Island and British Columbia merged together. Mm-hmm. That was prior to BC joining Confederation and BC joined Confederation in 1871. And I believe that the capital of BC was Victoria when they joined Confederation in 1871. So based on that, I am going to lock in a guess of 1849. 
Okay, and you've locked it in, so I don't even have to ask if you're locking in the answer. You've locked it in as 1849, so it's time for Bell or Buzzer. Did Dylan get the correct answer? Here we go. Bell or Buzzer? And that was the bell. So you got two in a row. 1849 is correct. That's when New Westminster lost its status. You're having a sweating here, Daniel. I know. Well, you're you're doing well. You're doing well. Look, I don't think I've ever had a guess. Or maybe I have had one that's had all the questions, right? So I don't want to put any pressure on you, Dylan. Um, Here we go. Number three. I did say it was getting more difficult. New Westminster was home to Canada's first hydroelectric power plant, which began operations in 1898. By the way, we still have our own electrical utility. We're one of only a few cities in the well, we're the only city in Metro Vancouver that doesn't use BC Hydro, just as an aside. But what was the name of that pioneering power plant back in 1898? Here's your four options. Is it A, Siwash Street Powerhouse? B, Regina Center Powerhouse? C, Winona Street Powerhouse? Or D, was it Royal City Powerhouse? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Okay, well, Royal City would make sense to me because New Westminster was, until very recently, the Royal City. I think it still is for now. We haven't changed it, but okay, yeah. we, we haven't digress. Ch- we digress. We okay, but that could also be that could also be to throw me off. Uh, Sidewash, Regina. None of the other names mean anything to me. I'm sure they are names of prominent streets, <laughs> the city of New Westminster. So you said you're offering hints. So you I can offer you. You got one question. What I do is I eliminate one of the um, I eliminate one of the responses. Okay, I'm going to take my hint. Okay, so I am going to remove Royal City Powerhouse. So it is. Oh, it is oh not. Boy. Okay, that was a good one to remove because that's probably what I would have done. <laughs> Sidewash Regina, or what was the third one? Sidewash Regina or Winona. Well. Regina is uh, a word for uh, the the crown, and New West is the royal city. So we're going to say Regina Center. Regina Center Powerhouse. Answer B. Is that your final answer? Final answer. Okay, here we go. Let's see if you keep your streak alive. You got the last two correct. Is it bell or buzzer? (laughs) Oh, Dylan, that sound was the buzzer. Oh, no. Oh, the correct answer was, it's a kind of an odd name, Winona Street Powerhouse. I didn't even I didn't even know that. So okay. um, I would not have gotten that one. There is a Regina Street in, in New Westminster and Queens Park, but that wasn't it. And Siwash Street, I think that's made up. So, but Winona Street <laughs> Powerhouse is the correct one. But the World City Powerhouse, I thought might have might have caught you there. So, okay. So um, here we go for the last of the bell or buzzer questions. Save the best for last. Here we go. New Westminster has served as the backdrop for numerous film and television productions. One of the most notable is the long-running TV series, Riverdale. Now, this is perhaps, and I don't want to like play on this, but this could be a trick question, but what fictional town does New Westminster portray in this series? Okay, so is it A, Midtown, B, center town d uptown or sorry c uptown or d riverdale so is it a midtown b center town c uptown or d riverdale 
Oh no. Oh no. Well, I have never seen this show before. I do know that Riverdale. Okay, I'm going to tie this in. Riverdale did film an episode in Ladner Village. In there the you are. So we, there's another connection. Delta Delta New West connection there. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I feel like if you're asking me the question, it was not Riverdale. I hope you can't hear my dog going crazy in the background. No, I cannot. <laughs> um, He's trying to help you. It's like a phone a friend, right? He's trying to give you the right answer. That's right. He he really knows the answer. Uh, gosh, I wish I read more of the Archie comics growing up. That's all I have to say. And I've used my hint. I'm gonna say I'm gonna I'm gonna say Riverdale. I'm gonna say Riverdale. Okay, you're gonna say Riverdale. So you've crossed out Midtown, Centertown, Uptown are all gone, and you've left Riverdale on the table. So here we go. Will you get three out of the four answers correct? Here we go. Is it Bell or Buzzer? Congratulations, you got the right answer. It was, in fact, Riverdale. So it was kind of a trick question. And I thought, well, he'll probably go for Riverdale. And you did. So you got it right. So three out of four. That's really good. And that other one you didn't get is a tough one. Because unless you kind of live here or kind of a historian on uh, power plants, it probably is a question that would be very difficult <laughs> for anybody uh, to get to get right. So and, I, and I was totally bluffing. I knew my Riverdale trivia. That was, I had that Of course one you did. Time. Of course you did. Oh, yeah. You are a Riverdale trivia expert. I've seen you on YouTube. You're all uh, winning all those, uh, those big <laughs> game shows. Dylan, I want to thank you very much for being on the podcast, taking a time out of your busy schedule to be here, talk about a number of really important topics, play Bell or Buzzer, have fun. I'd love to get you back on at some point uh, in the future, and uh, we can talk as the provincial election rolls along, the federal election, and also just a ton of other stuff happening in municipal government. It'd be great to have you on as a as a regular uh, onto the podcast. Yeah, well, hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this, by the way, and having these community conversations. It's so important to do. Uh, and thanks for everything that you do, representing your constituents in uh, in New Westminster. It's not an easy job, as I have learned. So I, I really commend you for it and for, for jumping in with this podcast. Well, thank you. And uh, you provided inspiration for me to throw my hat in the ring and to to win again. And I'm very pleased to to be on council in, in New Westminster. And all the best and the best of luck uh, in Delta. And I'm sure our paths will cross very soon. And like I said, love to have you back on the show soon. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. Okay. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to For the Record with Daniel Fontaine. The opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and not necessarily representative of New Westminster City Council. Thanks for tuning in.